0: Well, good evening. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 is where we'll be. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Go into the book of Romans. We're going to look at one verse there, Romans 6.14. And we'll start by just reading it. Romans 6.14, these are the words of God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we praise you because sin is no longer our master, but Christ is our master. We are no longer ruled by sin and death. We are ruled by King Jesus, and in that we rejoice. So help us see your word, help us understand your word in Christ's name I pray, amen. When it comes to the Christian life and how it is to be lived, uh, it's oftentimes beneficial to learn what we can from those who have gone before us. Um, This includes um, even uh, recent history, but it especially includes those who have gone before us in biblical history, uh, even if that was thousands of years ago. We're going to go all the way to the beginning here. When Adam and Eve were uh, in the garden, they were brought into the covenant of creation, sometimes called the covenant of works. I much prefer the covenant of creation because it's the same uh, covenantal God with the same covenant. Now, Adam and Eve were bound by God to God for God, right? And this binding is what we call the covenant. God instructed Adam... He said, eat of everything except for that tree. It was in this moment that Adam first heard the law of God. Don't do this. Having made known the terms and conditions of this covenant through this law, God made Adam aware that he could go one of two ways. Either Adam could obey, and in his obedience he would experience blessing, or he could disobey, Uh, In experience, God's cursing, the ultimate cursing being what he told him, death itself. If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Now, the warning could have hardly been made any more clear. Now, we can also say that this law of God was for Adam's benefit. It was good. It was a good thing that God gave uh, this law, and he made this law clear. um, Lest Adam commit spiritual suicide. So to say it differently, Adam, he was not restrained by spiritual or rather covenantal death yet. Um, He had the choice of either choosing God's law or doing the self-law thing. He would either obey God or he would obey his own desires. Adam was in the position of being able to sin and being able to not sin. Now when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, keep in mind one of the things the devil told them. He said, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. That word knowing is better translated determining. You can be like God, determining for yourselves good and evil. So basically the promise that um, Satan offered Adam and Eve was the promise of autonomy, which simply means self-law. They would become a law unto themselves, which uh, if we want to be biblical, we have to uh, um, categorize that or classify that as being lawlessness. So self-law is lawlessness. So instead of following what God says, they would choose for themselves how to govern um, themselves, um, each other, and how to govern the world. They wanted to do all of that on their own terms. They would, quite frankly, become their own God or their pretend God. Um, God's law wasn't good enough for them, and they chose the autonomous path instead, and thus the story of the world plunged into sin and death and chaos. Now, you need to know that man is naturally good in the sense that by nature, man at creation was created upright. That's what Ecclesiastes 7.29 says. So Adam was free from the stain of sin and pollution, Um, He was, by God's created order in creation, good. That's how God made him. Historically, however, we know that man is not good. Um, Permit me a moment to explain something. Uh, I've adapted this from, if you've not read R.C. Sproul's book, Chosen by God, you should repent of that and read it this week. Um, phenomenal book, absolutely phenomenal, and not like super technical to where you have to go and get a diploma first and then read it. It's very, very good. So here's kind of how Sproul breaks it up. I think it's just a super help. I remember reading that years ago and thought, wow, the light went on. It's a very super helpful way to explain this. And it's it's regarding our ability or our lack of ability to to sin or not. So before sin, this is pre-fall man. Man had the ability to sin, he was able to sin, and he was able to not sin. That's the category. After sin entered into the world, after the covenant was broken and covenantal death was thus the reality, man was able to sin, and here's the thing, he was unable to not sin. That's what um, the unregenerate state is. So, pre fall, able to sin, able to not sin. After sin entered in the world, in our unregenerate state, man is able to sin and he's unable to not sin. After man is reborn, after the Holy Spirit changes a man's heart, he's back to square one where he was with Adam. He's able to sin. A regenerate Christian is able to sin and he's also able to not sin. And then, of course, when history is wrapped up and Jesus has conquered the earth and he returns to his conquered earth, we have a new reality, the glorified state of man. We are able to not sin and we are unable to sin. We will have glorified bodies and sin will not be something we will be capable of doing. Now, I set that up because this is where our verse comes in tonight. Let's look at it again. Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Paul, what Paul is describing here is Romans 6 is what that thinking about man's ability to sin attempts to, to explain. So think of this in terms of history as history unfolds. Man before sin, man after sin, man after the rebirth, and then man in the eternal state, the eternal glorified state. There is a difference between what man is able to do and what he is not able to do after he is converted. There is a difference in all of those stages. Now, the difference here is not whether or not he's converted. The difference is not whether or not the law of God applies or doesn't apply. Note that. But before we get into that, let me shift gears. One of the reasons Christians get ensnared and entrapped by sin is because, frankly, our theology is off. We've forgotten something. We, we've withheld something that belongs to God, namely for his glory. So if, if you don't know, think about this, if you don't know that you don't know something from the Bible, how could you possibly obey it? So we're talking about unconscious, unconscious um, epistemology. And you don't know that you don't know something. That's a tough place to be. How can you obey something if you don't know that you don't know? More to the point, if you don't know where God's boundaries are, how do you know if you've crossed it or not? Now, you you can't repent of something if you don't know what it is you're supposed to be to repent of. Right? Hence the need for the law of God. The Apostle Paul in Romans elsewhere says, how would I have known that uh, covenanting was wrong if if?" If the Bible said, the law of God said, thou shalt not covet. Now, this goes two different ways. Sins aren't merely sins of commission, right? That commission, that's uh, things we do. Sometimes they're sins of omission, things that we've failed to do. So we're doubly, uh, we, we have a double problem here. So when a young child strikes his sibling over a toy, he didn't just sin because he hit his brother or sister, He sinned because he also failed to love his brother and sister as he was supposed to. So he didn't just do something. This person failed to do something as well. It wasn't just an action of hitting your brother or your sister. It was also the inaction of properly loving and serving like we're called to do. So it's important to know that sins aren't just an action of transgressing the law of God. They are sometimes a failing to do what the law requires, which is still a transgression. It's just passive rather than active. Now, I chose this verse to do in this series because it, too, is constantly yanked out of context and twisted into something unrecognizable, so unrecognizable that even the Apostle Paul who penned these words would probably stare at you cross-eyed and maybe even scream at you. I don't know, maybe. So let's look at the verse again. Follow the train of thought closely. For sin shall not be master over you. Why? Why shall sin not be master over you, dear Christian? Why is that? For you are not under law, but under grace. Now, Paul was a systematic man, and Romans is clearly one of the most systematic um, books in the Bible. In a sense, it truly is one of the greatest letters ever written, and like this, we should, uh, <laughs> it's perplexed so many readers throughout history. I'll just give you, like, if you're looking to study the book of Romans, um, pick up John Murray's commentary on Romans. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, Rush Juni has a great commentary on Romans. Some Romans commentaries are super technical and super unhelpful. But those two are absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Now, when we look at a verse like this, we have to consider what's already been said and what, what Paul's going to say after. Now, before I do that, though, here are some of the ways that it's misunderstood, and you've probably heard this. See, the law of God is completely over with. This verse says it's over with. It's done. We are under Jesus, not Moses. We're, we are not Old Testament Israel. We, we don't need to go there. We are not Old Testament Israel we are the church. We are the New Testament church, not Israel. We're, we are not under the law. So the Ten Commandments, they don't apply anymore. So why are you Christians obsessed with the Ten Commandments? They don't apply anymore. We, we are under grace. We are under grace. We are not under law. Why would you dare put me back under law? That was, that was then. That was oppressive. God was rude, To the people of Israel for giving them a law that was so harsh, right? We we are much better off under the humanistic laws of men, clearly. Jesus is much nicer. You've heard it, right? Those are the things that people say. That's the average evangelical temperature towards the law of God. It's rude. It's hateful. It was malicious of God to give it. It's abusive. The Supreme Court does a much better job... We should trust them and not the law of God, and so on, and so on, and so forth. If a person wants to just isolate one verse and build an entire theology off of, fine. You know, we have names for people like that, and it rhymes with meretic. But that's not how to do biblical exegesis, and that's not how we read the Apostle Paul. As has been the case with all of the other verses we've looked at already, People take their pet doctrine, and then they sort of just go hunting for verses that, you know, fit their narrative, and they say, gotcha, ha -ha," you know, and and we politely say, no, you don't got me, so quit laughing. (laughs) Now, I've already said this, but it's worth repeating. If you want to be a good student of the Bible, you have to keep reading your Bible. You don't stop. You have to keep reading the context. You have to know what was just said. You have to know what is all um, going to be said. Um, Reading comprehension is very vital to biblical interpretation. Now, you don't ever go to a movie and you you take one line out of a movie and think that you have the movie. You heard one line and you think you have it. That's the same thing with biblical interpretation. It doesn't work that way. Now, let me tell you where all this faulty logic leads. If someone starts with the premise that the law of God has zero applicability to a person's life, now that he's a Christian, right? It doesn't matter anymore. You're a Christian. The law is irrelevant. If you say that, you have, quite frankly, obliterated the final judgment. Our works are going to be judged. That is clear. When we stand before Jesus, all the junk gets burned up, and will be fully and finally and completely glorified and sanctified. But the question is, what standard is Jesus going to judge us by if the law of God is no longer relevant? Not only that, if the law of God no longer applies, then shall we sin then so that grace may abound? And Paul says, what? By no means. By no means. People who want the grace of God without the obligation of obedience, are people who simply do not understand how the grace of God works. They don't understand it. God does not save people so that they can go on and live however it is they want to live. He saves people by his grace so that they can conform themselves to his standards. You move from an inability to conform yourself to his standard to now an ability to conform yourself to his standard. Now, there is, much, there is so much confusion in the church as it pertains to the relationship between law and grace. Um, people, I've heard this. I've heard this from people in the church. They badmouth the law of God as if it was sinful. And Brother John read from Psalm 119. I picked that on purpose because Psalm 119 is just this glorious celebration of the law of God. And in most evangelical churches, they don't even know Psalm 119 is in their Bible. The pastor's never preached on it. Or if he did, it's just this vague concept of how we should just love the Bible. So if you think the law of God is sinful and it serves no purpose, then you might as well take that entire chapter out of your Bible. David says, ad nauseum, I might add, Oh, how I love your law. I love it. I meditate on it day and night. He's like obsessed with it, (laughs) neurotic about it, as we should be. Listen, the opposite of law, the opposite of law is not grace. It's lawlessness, okay? The opposite of law is not grace. It's lawlessness. Grace and law are not enemies. They are, in fact, best friends. They are best friends, and they are such good friends that they love working together. They, They love it. Um, Sure, they both know that they have their own functions, their own power, their own purposes, their own jurisdictions, but they aren't enemies as many people make them out to be. They know their roles, they are quite comfortable with their roles, and they would rather not do each other's job. So let's not mess those things up. But yes, there is a lot of confusion because people read a Bible verse like this and they fail to do the hard work of biblical exegesis piecing together what Paul is saying and what he's not saying and looking at the context and then going from there. So now, what has Paul already said in the book of Romans? Let's cover just a couple of areas. To start, the law cannot contribute anything to a person's justification, their legal standing before God. The person who stands before God is under the curse of the law's demands. Why? For violating um, God's precepts. And violating God's precepts um, cannot be uh, anything that's admissible in court, right? You, law cannot do a thing to justify the person who violated it. Earlier in Romans 3.20, he said, By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. So if you, if you want to be accepted by God right, on your own works, it's never going to happen, Galatians 5.4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So put it in a modern, you're in the courtroom. It's futile to try and beg the judge to pardon your guilt by appealing to the law you broke. That's what the Judaizers were essentially doing. So it doesn't make sense, it doesn't even work, and it can never ever work. You cannot be justified in God's courtroom by righteous or attempted righteous law-keeping. You can't do it. Anyone who teaches this sort of nonsense is an anathema, a heretic, and you should run from them or debate them, um, but don't listen to them. <laughs> Second, the law cannot relive, um, relieve rather the bondage of sin. The law cannot relieve the bondage of sin. It cannot break the stranglehold and power of sin in a sinner's life. Now later in Romans 8, Paul says that the flesh, which when he says flesh, he means the sinful nature within man. The flesh is at war with God. Is, it's indeed rebellious towards God and his righteous standards. So the law of God cannot do anything to overthrow the sinful nature in you. It's powerless to do it. And, and an unregenerate sinner as well, it can, the law cannot overthrow that sinful nature. It's powerless. It does not that's not the job description that it adheres to. The law cannot make you obey. Now, my kids, and probably your kids too, all kids, really, I guess, they, they can't obey the rules by me simply rehearsing the rules more often right? They have to have a new heart. So if, 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 if a child, to use the earlier analogy, if a child strikes his sibling for whatever reason, us saying 5,000 times, don't hit your sister, don't hit your brother, we know that's not, that's not the thing that's going to be the magic words that make it go away, right? You've been a parent for five minutes, you know that. It just doesn't ma- happen that way. The same thing goes with the unbeliever. The law, does, the, the law does show what is right, what is true, what is you know, good. But the character and nature of a sinner, an unregenerate sinner, prevents him from performing that obedient act. Right? So that's why we have to say to our kids, that's why we have to say to an unbeliever, we have to show them what the righteousness looks like. It isn't just don't hit your sister. It's we need to show respect and love toward our sister, my, my brother. or we, we have to show the positivism of it too. We can't just go with what's negative. Now, regarding our text here, in the original language, Paul doesn't say we are not under the law. Notice in your Bible, verse 14, you are not under the law law it doesn't say you are not under the law that's not in anywhere in the greek text like it's some sort of general sense of the word in other words (laughs) we are not under in we are not under indictment right or to repeat what he says in the first part the christian is no longer under the dominion of sin sin is no longer our master now i want to quote Rushduni because it's brilliant most of it most of his stuff is To be an outlaw is to be a fugitive from justice because we are under the law on the wrong side of it. We are no longer under indictment under law because Christ's death and resurrection liberates us from the death penalty which was over us. We are under grace. We now have a new relationship to God through Christ. So the issue here in Romans 6.14 is not whether or not we are to obey God's law or not. That's not the issue. The issue is the difference between an utter inability to obey the law and then the spiritual enablement to do so, right? That's Romans 8. You got, go later read Romans 8 and follow his train of thought. Because we are not under law but under grace now, sin no longer has a dominion over us. It's no longer our master. In other words, because we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, and thus we can say that sin had dominion over us, right? the law made us guilty under its authority, we now have the ability to be free from the consequence and the condemnation of the law, not the obligation to obey it. I'll say that again. Because sin is no longer our master, right, we're no longer dead in sins, we're no longer unregenerate, we've been regenerated, we've been changed, right, we now have the ability to be free from the condemnation, the consequence of what the law teaches us, but we're not free from the obligation to obey it. So there's a change in how the authority of the law is administered to the Christian, it's not a change if you're supposed to follow it or not. It's a change in the authority of the law, how it's administered to the Christian. Now, let's... The practical example, all right? Um, go ahead and go down Lee Highway uh, and, and just speed with a cop there. Okay, go... Uh, When you come around this side of Warrington, it's like 55, go 80 with a cop there, okay? I dare you. (laughs) Please don't do that. (laughs) But let's say that you did, and the officer pulls you over, and he says, you know, license and registration, and then you say, are you detaining me? No, you don't have to say that. (laughs) You can say that, Uh, but... um. Go ahead and say to him, you know, he, he clocks you, you were doing 80 and a 55, that's a problem around here, sir. Uh, I'm going to give you a speeding ticket. And you could say to him, listen, I am not under law, but I'm under grace, officer. We so appreciate you to get your Bible on here, uh, follow, keep up to speed, right? And now, if you said that to him, let's say he was in a happy mood. And he might respond, well, look, you are under the law again now because you broke it. Right? So, and then if you really want to be biblical, you just tell him Jesus already paid the fine, you're good to go. Now, Greg Bonson aptly puts it this way. The person who is under law is one whose resources and powers are determined exclusively by the law. The parallels, that's end quote, the parallels throughout this section are obvious. Look at verse 12. Being under law is likened to having sin reign within oneself. Sin dominates you. In verse 14, he comes right back to it. Being under law is is akin to having sin, having dominion over you, having its authority over you, being your master. Go down to verse 17. In verse 17, under the law, being under law, is the equivalent of being a slave to sin. As Bob Dylan has said, you've got to serve somebody. Right? Right? So the question is, who is your master? Who or what will rule you? Who will you look to? What will you look to? You can't serve two masters, so either you will look to Christ to save you, or you will look to yourself to save you. Who will serve you? Who is your master? Is it sin? Is it the law of sin and death, as Romans 8 says? Or is it Christ? Now look at chapter 7, verse 5. This whole flow of thought is going together. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, notice that, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Paul says that while we were dead in sin, the effect of God's law on you was to further your rebellion. God's law was to make you produce fruit that led to death. So in other words, the law of God for the unregenerate sinner whose master is sin, it makes us more, re- more zealous in our rebellion. The law pushes, pushes that in you, right? It's, you know, it's like adding Red Bull to your crockpot meal. We broke the law, and the only thing the law can do is make you more crazy about breaking the law. Because James has said, if you broke one, you broke them all, right? That's just what it is. The law of God was the death sentence that was given to us by the covenant God. It declares to us, in our rebellion, in our apostasy, you deserve death. And isn't that what the law did to Adam in the garden? You eat of this, you surely die. Now, the law has many functions, but the issue in this passage... Is the difference between what the law does for the unbeliever and what grace does for the believer? What, what does the law provide? What does grace provide? Because they work in tandem together. To be a sinner, apart from the grace of God in Christ, is to have a death sentence. That's the promise of Genesis. That's why Jesus came to die. Your death sentence, dear Christian, what happened to it? What happened? Because in Adam, we ate the fruit and we received death. But your death sentence, what happened to it? Before grace, grace saved you, you had a death sentence. And after Christ saved you, what happened to it? The cross, right? The cross of Christ. The thing that we sing about all the time. Remember that. Your death sentence was fulfilled in Christ. The law the law's punishment against you is gone. Listen to the lyrics of the hymn, And Can It Be? We've seen, we sing that here. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what, a, that's what the gospel does to a person. You're dead in sins, in the dungeon. Your chains have, have, have enslaved you. And the gospel comes in as a light, breaks the chains, shows you the way to righteousness. Now remember, and you might think I'm splitting theological hairs here, but I'm not. Christ did not die so that you could live. He didn't die so you could live. Don't make that mistake. Uh, it has a lot of ramifications if you don't get it right. Christ didn't die so that you could live. Christ died so that you would die. You had to die with him, right? Your sinful nature must be put to death. And in principle, you died with Christ. So if you are in Christ, you died with him. You were crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. So in the eyes of the law of God now, you are judicially dead. You, You cannot be sentenced to death ever again because the penalty was paid in Christ. Listen to Rush I need to quote him again, because this is fire. The sinner, having made himself God in his own eyes, is at war with God. The law of God only incites him to more warfare. The law thus drove us into more bondage to sin. By regeneration, however, our union is no longer with sin, but with Christ. Being alive in Christ is, We are now alive to the law, not as a death sentence against us, but as that which represents our new life, the newness of spirit, our life in Christ, whereby the law is now our happy way of life. End quote. He continues a little more. Please get this. The law does not die. The old man, the unregenerate man, dies the new regenerate man now has a relationship to the law, no longer in the motions of sin, but in newness of spirit. Whereas for the sinner, the violation of God's law is the drive and nature of his being. For the regenerate man, obedience to the law in Christ is the delight of his being, quote. So in Christ, you died to the law. That's what he means, you're not under law anymore. You're not under the indictment. You're not under its death sentence. You have died to the law's um, revealing of your sin. Also in Christ, you are now alive to the law. In Christ, you died to the law, but in Christ, you were alive to it again. So when the Spirit quickens the heart of a sinner and that sinner comes to Christ, His relationship to that law changes. His relationship to the law changes. And I don't, how in the world, it doesn't make sense why people get this so tangled up. Why would anyone malign the character and nature of God by declaring that his law is garbage, that it's evil, that it was unjust? Why would anyone dare flaunt this verse as a means to say that they no longer have any ethical or judicial obligation to obey Christ and his law of liberty. It's because, well, and with one regard, biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high, right? Nobody wants to study their Bible anymore. We carry it around in our pockets now, but are we any better for it? Pile that on the fact that pastors, they just want to keep their constituents in perpetual diapers, so it seems. The issue here in Romans 6, 14 is not whether we are to obey God's law or not. The issue is the difference between an utter inability to obey the law, right? And as a consequence of the gospel, the spiritual enablement to do so. Because we are not under law, but under grace, sin no longer is our master. That's the point, In other words, because we are not dead in our trespasses and sins any longer, and and thus we can say that sin had dominion over us, we now have the ability to be free. Free from what? Not free from the law. Free from the consequence and the condemnation of the law. Not free from the obligation to obey it. And I'll reiterate this again. Here's what Paul is saying. You are not under law as a means of justification. You are under grace as a means of justification. Nowhere does Paul throw the law away. Nowhere does he throw it away. Nowhere does Paul say, this law is oppressive, you should not obey it. Just love Jesus. That's the only, No creed but Christ, right? Listen to what he says in Romans 3.31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. Contrary. On the contrary. We establish the law. To reiterate, we are not declared not guilty, right? We are not declared not guilty in God's courtroom by our works. It's just that simple. We are dead to the law's indictments against us because Christ obeyed perfectly and we died in Him. You took His death And and now it's yours. His death is yours. He died on your behalf and you were brought together with him. And so listen, the grace part in all of this discussion is not that we don't have to obey God's law anymore, but rather that we are no longer frustrated by an inability to do it. I'll say it again. The grace part in all of this is not that we don't have the obligation to obey God's law, but rather we are no longer frustrated by this inability to actually do it. We are dead to its indictments. We are alive to its path of holiness. The law isn't this threat that's hanging over our heads anymore. If you are in Christ, it doesn't threaten you. It can't touch you as a curse. Why? Because Christ took the curse. Because Christ became a curse for us and thus he broke the condemnation. It's now a way of life. Why is it a way of life? Because we are under grace So your relationship to the law changes when grace gets up in your face. It changes. And part of the reason that people misread this is because they think that the problem Paul and Jesus fought against were people who obeyed God's law. That's what they think the problem was. That, you know... (laughs) That's not it. <laughs> the Pharisees and the Judaizers did not obey the law, right? They were, they were using elements of it for justification, this right standing for God, but Jesus didn't fight with them because they attempted to obey God's law. He fought with them because they didn't. They were hypocrites. They had, they had corrupted and poisoned the law of God and contorted it to mean whatever they wanted it to mean. And Jesus says they, they neglected the weightier matters. So we're getting close to the end here. Hang tight, kiddos. Here's the reality of the law of God. And this is from chapter seven. So you can follow with me. Verse 14, the law is spiritual. The law is spiritual. Verse 12, back up. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law was to result in life. Verse 10, being in sin, Paul affirms that the law is good. Verse 16, as a redeemed man in Christ, Paul affirms in verse 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Why does he say all these things? Because the Spirit of God writes it on your heart. The law is a standard for righteousness. What about love? How many have heard that? We heard that last week while we were in D.C. at the parade. Um, I was told this by several people. Actually, come to think of it, what you're doing is not loving. You standing up for the preborn, sharing Christ. We had a team of probably 25 or 30, and that's that's what we were told. You're not being loving. What about love? What is love? <laughs> love. Is the summary of the law. If you want to know how you're doing, look at the Ten Commandments, check yourself. Love isn't merely this feeling, love is actually an action. It's obedience to the law of God, says Romans 13.10. So don't make the mistake that law and grace are at odds with each other. The law was never meant to save anyone, it never had that purpose, especially in the Old Testament. Old Testament saints were saved the same way we are, by grace through faith. And so we'll wrap up with this. Why does it even matter? Why does this matter? Well, this matters, and it matters a lot, because we still have the problem of people trying to create the category of carnal Christianity. What is a carnal Christian, you ask? This is the idea basically that someone can be a Christian and live their lives in constant, habitual, unrepentant sin, live fleshly, um, to, to translate the Greek more literally, right, and still be a Christian. Do Christians sin? Yeah, they do. Do Christians love it? No, they don't. It, 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 this whole thing, it's the it's the It's the person who says, you know, I grew up in the church. I was, I was baptized a long time ago. I said the sinner's prayer. But you know what? I really, I drink a lot. I cuss a lot. You know, I look at pornography a lot. I treat my wife poorly pretty much every single day and so on and so on. That's the type of thing we're talking about. It's the, it's, it's the person who is tempted to portray himself or herself on, on, online, basically, on social media. Like, we have our life together, but we really don't. And we all know that, right? We get the perfect family picture, but <laughs> how many with kids can say that it took like 50 pictures to get that, maybe? We, that's, the, that's the reality, but we can't. We, we mustn't put ourselves out there in those types of ways. Um, it's, this, it's the person who isn't genuinely converted, but he's self-deceived because he's not really a doer of the word, like James says we should be. So there's no such thing as carnal Christianity. There are Christians and there are non-Christians. That's it. There's no middle category. There's no such thing as a nominal Christian. You know, yeah, I go to church on Easter and Christmas, you know, whenever I feel like it. Uh, I'm a Christian. Um, I haven't shared the gospel with anybody in years. In fact, I haven't even opened up a Bible since, you know, VBS when I was 12. I can't even remember the last time I prayed, but yeah, I'm a Christian. There's no fruit, nothing. Nothing. And that's the problem. We were created for good works, but there are none. And is that how it's supposed to be? No. No, it doesn't work like this. Do Christians struggle? Absolutely. None of us is without sin, right? But are you struggling or are you losing? There's a difference. True faith is faith that works works itself out in obedience to God's law word. That's what it is. It's the standard of righteousness. When a man dies with Christ, the law doesn't die, he dies. The law lives on, and instead of being a condemnation for us, it guides us, because the Spirit has written it on our hearts. And God does not grant dead faith to people. One final thing, if your faith isn't causing you to look back each year and say, wow, man, I have grown in this area, you know, I used to treat my spouse like this, but now look where we are. You know, I used to have this horrible habit, but and I really dealt with this issue, but now I don't see myself dealing with this. Look what God has done. Look what God has delivered me from. If you can't say that, then we have to check ourselves to see if we know Christ, or better yet, does he know us? To stand in the freedom of the finished work of Christ is to follow God's Law, Not because we earn God's favor, but because we love God's favor that has already been bestowed. And so it's not legalism, right? It's legalism to use it as a means to try and get right with God. But when you realize the gospel message and the power of it and how we actually get right with God, you can then look to God's word, His law, His authority, as how that relationship is supposed to look. And when you realize that, Christ, that you died with Christ, and in you were raised with him, your life changes. A warning from Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So ask yourself, do I know Christ? Do I really know him? Does he know me? Am I living for him in his glory or am I living for me in my glory? A- am I letting sin back in when in reality I've died to sin, sin's dominion in my life? Is my heart growing cold or indifferent? This is the spiritual warfare that we must do. And so church, we must repent. So repent with me. Let's untangle all the sinful webs that we weave and let's go to Christ together. That's Romans six Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my guess is that there are a lot of us here today who are struggling, be it sickness or sin or stress or anxiety. Many of us, many of us are struggling. My hope, Father, is that having heard your word proclaimed, that many of us would be drawn to your grace in our hour of need. May we with David say, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. May we cry out with David again, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. Jesus, we are grateful for your rescuing us. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. May you be glorified now as we come to your table of grace. In Christ's name I pray, amen.